Hello there, and welcome to No Borders with your hosts, Gerald, Mark, and Steven. And today we are talking about Object Relational Mappers, or ORMs. Stay tuned. So today we are talking about object relational mappers, but before we go in there, I think there is a big product that we all know that um, has a big database. So, you know, that's something that we're going to talk about. This is the segue already. Facebook, I think they have a data breach with like half a billion records or something. Um, did you get an email from, have I been pwned yet? No, not, not yet. But now I'm really scared because I think I somehow missed that one. Actually, so I'm now getting informs on the air, panicking, typing in my browser as a mad to find out have I been hacked. Yeah, so I don't know if it's if the if the data set was loaded yet. And I, I think kind of the I don't know all the details. I just, you know, you know how I am. I just read the headlines. Um but I think the uh, uh the ironic thing is that it it was done through kind of a loophole in the two-factor authentication with your phone number. Um, <laughs> so I think the people who were, you know, trying to stay safe and do the right thing um, actually now got hacked. And there is, there is, a, I mean, the kind of scary thing with all these hacks is that we've also had a couple of local ones uh, in the Netherlands. So they're very specific to the Netherlands. One is like the, the national registration of all the cars, um, so they now suddenly know where all the expensive cars are and who the owners are and where they live. Um, and we had another one. I don't know which one that was, but uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but the scary thing is the more of these things get out, the more they can combine this data. They can you know, cross-reference between all the datas and databases and things, and they can um, get a more targeted email or message or do whatever because in this i think it had like um your email well your phone number then your name uh your gender and probably a couple of other things um so you know and they're getting quite good i don't know if we ever talked about this before but at some point i was traveling to a conference and uh, i got a text from my mother uh, I yes, don't be surprised. I have a mother, <laughs> um, and she texted me with like, "Hey, I'm getting these strange messages from you, or for from you from another number. Um, what's up with that?" And I was like, "No, uh, send me. <laughs> what What are you seeing?" So she screenshotted a couple of things, and luckily, apparently, I raised them good enough to be cautious with these kinds of things. Uh, so she screenshotted a couple of things, and it was really weird to see someone pretending to be you. Um, saying like, hey, I switched phones. Yeah, you know, how is how is my sister doing? And they had all these kinds of details. Um, also through going through your Facebook profile, I think. Um, so that was that was kind of scary. But I said, no, just block them. Don't do whatever with that. Uh, but that is the kind of targeted attacks that you can do whenever you combine all these sets of data. So that is, um, yeah, something that could potentially be really scary. Yeah, that's a pretty familiar story. I had a similar text, I think just the end of last year, um, also from my mom, who was also, apparently I was begging for money. Um, <laughs> yeah, which, that's what you Which do. I typically do, <laughs> yeah. so she responded like, yeah, <laughs> duh, here he is again. It's in your um, account, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> Already booked it over. Well, yeah, so the, that that is indeed kind of scary. And obviously, like you said, she was pretty quick to figure out that that wasn't me. Um, 
but it it does it it kind of scares you and i think in the end it's you could have a little bit of fun with it i mean if if i were the one getting the text i would probably like play along or do something and i think <laughs> i think also here in the netherlands i saw some some people who actually played along with it and mm. gave them a payment link which if they clicked it all of their stuff like their ip their everything uh was taken and sent including a picture of their front face cam and all that kind of stuff so that way they were outed pretty quickly um which was also kind of fun to uh to see happen but yeah it's it's it can be very scary yeah that is truly scary stuff and i remember we did an episode not too long ago on privacy so like do you really have to collect all that information and uh yeah i we have just in switzerland recently there has been a kind of huge hack so they wanted to make this uh when you get vaccinated they wanted to make a digital passport and there was like that non-profit um that was actually starting to accumulate that data and they somehow didn't really secure it so suddenly you could see how people got vaccinated even like really high politicians because they got like the vaccination shot so the highest uh, political position in switzerland they can have is inside of the bundesrat which are seven people and they already got vaccinated because strategic blah 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 and yeah so you could see like which kind of vaccine they got and all that kind of stuff now at the time they already took the database offline but I mean, there have been, there, there's usually a lot of private information going along with these breaches. And even if you think like, ah, yeah, I, I really have got nothing to hide. I think it's uh, really scary once you see how people start impersonating other people and then getting uh, more information or money or being able to purchase stuff uh, in your name. So that is super scary. And I know for a fact, that for many years, the number one attack vector that people use are actually not two-factor authentication, but it's SQL injection. So something that has been along for a very, very long time. And I think that might be our segue into using ORMs. What do you think, Gerald? Ah, I was going to go with the relations, like the relationships with our mothers and our relationship and relation i don't know now yours is bad. well you know what it's our show we can have two segues and <laughs> vote for your favorite one now <laughs> uh well anyway we're we're past the segue now um so let's talk about the thing that we're here for orms um what is it mark so orms object relational mappers as you already said in the introduction what you usually have is uh your database in the past oftentimes it was a relational database and you then started to develop more and more in object-oriented programming languages. And relational database, they react a bit different, or they're a bit, they've got a different architecture and style, how data is uh, set up than you usually would do with objects. So uh, with a classical SQL, uh, you try to minimize as much duplication as you can. So you got a lot of foreign keys and primary keys and all those things to link the stuff together. You got the indexes to optimize search queries and all that. Uh, and in the end, what you often then have in, in our world of .NET, you have got a C-sharp, F-sharp, or VB application, which can do some kind of OO. And what an ORM tries to do is leave you uh, living in the, or in the OO world, so in the object-oriented world, uh, but you can still interact with your uh, relational database. That could be an MS SQL, it could be MySQL, it could be PostgreSQL. 
um, but you don't really have to do the SQL queries per se. You can do this all in a uh, link style fashion sometimes, or you can still do your SQL, but in the end, you'll have objects to uh, then play along with. So basically what you're saying is all the keys and all that stuff, you define them somewhere in your object and all the database stuff when you're trying to join or create complex queries, you can just do from the objects, right? Well, that really depends on the ORM, I think. But yes, I mean, in the end, what you want to have is you want to have some kind of good old POCO, uh, plain old CLR object. And uh, that's what an ORM should provide you with. Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned it like that because um, the first thing that comes to mind for me with all this talk is entity framework, um, talking about .NET and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and basically what we're describing here is a abstraction layer on top of, you know, all the hard SQL stuff, uh, database stuff, you know, I'm a developer, I can be bothered with all that things. Um, and so, you know, what you mentioned, like, we just want to have these objects, um, in our code and not, um, uh, want to worry about all the joins and that kind of stuff. But I think it's still a pretty good idea to, know what's going on under the hood, which makes it, Entity Framework makes that very easy um, to still see the SQL queries that it's generating for you because that's at the end of the day, what it's doing for you. Because you can you can get into trouble really easily with circular dependencies and, and whatnot. And uh, I mean, that's a bad idea in, in code as well, but also for SQL, you have a couple of these things where you want to be aware of what you're doing. So I think it's still good, you know, even if you're going to use an ORM and overlay that on top of your um, um, database layer, let's let's just call it that. Um, it's still good to know. And I think this is true for all the concepts that you're trying to abstract away. It's still good to have some knowledge of what's going on under the hood to understand whenever you um, run into trouble that how you can actually solve these things. Yes, that's always true. I think when you when you talk about ORMs, I think there's also always this philosophical uh, debate going on. Like uh, I've read once the title, the ORMs are the Vietnam of database uh, interaction. So it seems to always be like an uphill battle uh, at some point. And yeah, I think it's I think it's always like there, is it really worth it to use an ORM? Because I mean, some people, they know uh, SQL really well. So they uh, have learned the, uh, how to write these queries and they can write these queries really quickly and efficiently. And from my point of view, I th for me, uh, ORMs on one end, what they allow me to do is I don't really have to write any SQL most of the time. So I can just, uh, as I already said before, I can use LinkU. So I can say I want to have from this table and I can put a filter over it with a where clause. I can map it with selects and stuff like that. And so for me, that is quite handy most of the times because I don't really then have to go down into the SQL. Uh, then again, um, sometimes these ORMs, they break. So sometimes because you've got a database somewhere down there, and you always map that up to the object uh, space, there are some discrepancies there that you will hit if you're unaware of them. So sometimes you will still have to go down and do your good old SQL. Uh, fun fact, SQL I think is one of the languages that hasn't changed since years. I mean, if you can do SQL, you could have learned it like in the 90s. And it's, I mean, maybe there are some changes I don't know of, but yeah, it's, it's pretty much the same still. So maybe language that's worth your while learning it. 
but yeah, I mean, sometimes you got like some performance stuff going on. So I know databases, they're really keen to have the indexes set on the right position. And then you can even rebuild your indexes and do all the fun stuff like that. And yeah, uh, sometimes your ORM will generate some not very efficient uh, SQL queries. So if you're the SQL Jedi master, you might be able to write way more efficient queries than an ORM would ever be able to. And then you could invoke those. Or you could use store procedures on your SQL database, which again, you could then invoke. But yeah, I mean, so there, there are some parts where ORMs will break down. But speaking about ORMs, in the .NET world, Stephen, what are our options? Well, I've always pretty much been a uh, an entity framework exclusive. Um, back when I was doing that kind of development, I can say in our in our little mobile adventures, I've used a lot of this. Um, I think there is such a thing as EF Core that you could run on Xamarin. Is there? I'm not quite sure, but I believe there is. I've actually. never tried it. I think there is. I mean, I know that the they have invested quite a bit lately in the SQLite uh, space, so it might be able. You you might actually be able to do it. Uh, I still don't know if you want to do it, but I mean, if you if you really like, if you know EF Core and you really like it, I think you could actually use it in Xamarin. Though I would have to probably try that out before giving recommendations on the show, perhaps. Link in the show notes of Mark's adventures <laughs> on this. Um, yeah, so you already mentioned it, SQLite. Um, that is also one of the things that I used back in the day also uh, when starting with Xamarin because that was, I think, the, the only and most advised way to do it on the internet um that's how you learn obviously from googling the internet um and then there's others like dapper and and hibernate but i have never touched any of those so i i don't know the ins and outs of those um i just know that they exist me neither but i a dapper i hear a lot lately i think that is pretty um pretty popular all of a sudden Mark? Mark, yeah, you are always the go-to guy for these kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. Techie yeah. questions, yeah. go to Mark. Okay, yeah, go to Mark. Um, yeah, so Dapper, I believe it's been around for quite some time. And I know the guys from Stack Overflow, or sorry, and I know the devs from Stack Overflow, they actively use it, and they might even be the creator of it. I would have to check on that, check the show notes. We'll be way wiser when we write them. So Dapper is known for a very being able to write very performant code. You usually write your own SQL queries there. And so you're really close to the metal there. Uh, and Hibernate, as far as I know, actually started off as jHibernate. So it's been like a port over from Java because back in the days from the dot, early .NETs, um, Java was there for quite some time. And so you see some popular frameworks from Java actually being ported over to C Sharp. One of them was in Hibernate. And you could then write it in a similar style, your your database or your object relational method. I remember have using it once, um, but that's like nearly 10 years ago. So I, I don't know if it's still going strong. It might be there. Uh, if you know, please, please let us know. Um, I think I always liked that there's not just one option out there. I mean, I'm sure EF and EF Core, they have been quite popular. I mean, Microsoft is behind those frameworks so usually some enterprise businesses they will always opt for the microsoft option but i have heard very good things about dapper and yeah i might one day have the chance to even try it out 
after a Google result tells me this mark will be the one and only way to go from now on. So, and uh, we're talking about EF, so Entity Framework Core and EF Entity Framework Framework. <laughs> um, so no, but the Entity Framework started as, you know, a ORM for full .NET Framework, right? And now together with .NET Core, you also have Entity Framework Core because, you know, those kind of go hand in hand uh, because Entity Framework Core, I then guess, has some features that are not entirely backwards compatible with Entity Framework. Uh, one of the I'm not really a guy to know all these all these nitty gritty um, differences between these versions, but one of the things I do know, um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is that Entity Framework Core had a really cool um, in memory kind of data store where you could have this in memory kind of thing, uh, because using that with you know if you we did the, the the episode on dependency injection and stuff so if you got all these layers separated and uh, nicely abstracted away then you can just inject your memory store in there for testing and whatnot and then whenever you go to production then you can talk to your actual data layer so that's something cool that you could do with that um, so but one of the things that um, entity framework core has that i think original OG entity framework didn't have is do in memory databases, right? Is that? Yeah, yeah, true? that's true. Um, and because you're doing it in memory, if you're using it for something like unit tests, it also doesn't need to make a connection or do any queries to a database over some sort of internet connection or something. So it, it should be like pretty fast. It should be very fast. And and yeah. also, like, you know, whenever you're testing, we also did an episode on testing. So there's going to be lots of links in the show notes. Uh, but if you're testing, then you also want to have a predictable data set, right? So and that's very easy to do whenever you have this in-memory database because you will just write some code to basically wipe out that database that's only in memory um, and then create it um, completely from scratch um, the way that you expect it to be um, in in memory, so that's really cool. And also, you know, whenever you that's the thing that I used it for because who writes tests anyway? Um, is I was writing some web application, and it would be very easy to just you know have some um, um, test data in there and not have to connect to spin up an actual second instance of your SQL database, fill it with some data, blah blah. You could just do it in memory, and while you are developing, you can just add those fields in there, see how it all behaves. So that was. Um, it, it worked very nicely. I ran into, I can't remember the actual um, um, concrete things, but I ran into some limitations that you couldn't do. Uh, but I think it overall, it, it went pretty well. Yeah, I think another thing is also that EF6, I think is the last one, isn't being developed further anymore. So like all the new bits are coming to core and while core is not entirely up to par with the full version yet, um, like, it's obviously that's going to come in the future for as far as possible. Um, but yeah, all the new bits are going into the core version. Yeah, I remember, again, many years ago, I mean, Entity Framework, I think it's been released in 2008. So that's like ages ago, at least according to Wikipedia. And if you compare, I mean, EF had its own journey. So I remember you could have the code first approach. So that means you write your database, so to speak, in, in C-sharp, and then you can then generate your database uh, from that. And then there was the database-first approach where you already had a database, but yeah, then you connect up EF to it. And then there was one uh, where you could design it in a designer. So you could click together these 
relational things yeah. and then it would generate again the script. And I think they dropped a few of those options when moving over to EF Core. And so, yeah, you, you will have some differences and they also tried some things out in EF that did not work out so well. I think auto migration. So you, you could do this crazy thing where you could just change your object uh, while checking it in and it would detect the change that you did automatically and then generate a migration. And I'm sure we'll still touch on those a bit later. Uh, and that was, I mean, I think in some scenarios that was like super helpful and in other scenarios that just fell apart in a super weird way. So they they backtracked a bit from there. But um, EF Core has been around for quite a while. And I think these days, uh, I've used it on a couple of projects. It, it feels really stable and feature complete, so I'm not missing any features in my projects that I really want to use. And for getting going quickly, I still really like the EF Core approach because I don't really have to write any SQL. I can just live in my C-sharp world and it will do its stuff. I also know that you shouldn't really go down the EF Core route if you ever want to do F-sharp because they do some weird inheritance things that F-sharp does not really like that much. And it will just be, just don't go there, dear listener. If you're trying it out, there are better routes for you when using F-sharp. But yeah, I'm, I'm digressing. Uh, Which are those, Mark? You can't tell the <laughs> listeners that there's a better route for F-sharp and not mention it. Okay, check the show notes. I'll, I'll put the link in there. <laughs> he doesn't uh, know. He doesn't know. Okay. I, I know them. Right. It's just not at the top of my head. I'm sorry. But <laughs> we can we can make a sig when where I just go like, uh, wait, let me check. Hammering on the keyboard. No, no, no. Oh, there. Oh, yeah. I'll just put the link for you in the show notes to your listener. It will be easier for all of us. Yeah. But Gerald, before throwing me again under the bus there, you mentioned testing before. And uh, I'm, I'm a person that really likes to do testing. Might be because I'm not that much out for the thrill and more for the chill um mm. that was a really bad well. joke <laughs> but anyhow so testing all rems i mean you put out some great points and i remember the in-memory database and i think it's really great for testing it uh so i remember back in the day this is a sentence i've said too many times in this episode already back in the day um there was this ruby on rails framework it's still there today it's still going strong uh, but they were the first that came out with this approach where you could use a database, you could have migrations, and then also test it. And they used for testing, they used SQLite, uh, because usually when you work with a database, it's always the speed problem. So you mentioned it before, you have to set up the database. So usually when you write a test, you always want to have the database in a known state. So when you, as soon as you start changing any pieces of data in the database for the next test, you just scrap the entire database rebuild it again from a new. And you can do this with EF Core. Uh, so you can make your entire database in memory uh, with one or two caveats. So one that I know is uh, if you don't delete the database at the end, it will be still there. So if you have tests running in parallel, that can have some real fun side effects if you do that. Uh, another one that you will always have a difference is the in-memory database will not be the same as your MS SQL uh, database. So if you really have some uh, sophisticated uh, database thing going on, you might not be able to use the in-memory testing, but it gives you an option. And for many use cases, this might be a really cool thing to do. Now, I mentioned it quickly before. I know, Gerald, you're a big fan of them. Migrations. Why don't you let us all know about the goodness that migrations bring you? 
Oh man, I have <laughs> got myself in trouble with migration so many times you wouldn't believe. Oh yeah. <laughs> I I fully agree. What what seems like a great idea once you actually go do it, it's like uh, I'm going to give up. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to manually update this database. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. But then you're in even bigger trouble because then yeah. it doesn't know like, oh no, you didn't update through me, so I don't know where we are. Anyway, if you're listening to this and you have no clue what we're talking about, then you are a blessed person. Uh, but Entity Framework has a thing called migrations, which, you know, um, as you develop further on, you will have new fields in your objects or new objects or new relationships between those objects. So they came up with migrations and you can just say, hey, Entity Framework, I want you, want you to generate for me a migration path and it will come up with a piece of C-sharp code that will have, I think the method is actually called up and down. Um, so whenever you go up, then it will do that migration up. So you will upgrade um, and it will do all the code that's in there, which is again generated for you based on the the, the uh, relations or the objects or the fields that you've added. So it will add all those things also to the database. And whenever you go down, because you can also go down, whenever you think like, this is not the right way, I'm going to go down again. Um, it also know how to undo all these things. Um, so in theory, that works great, but I always ended up in some kind of state where I the database would not know that it upgraded or that it should upgrade, or I don't know how I got to do it. Um, it is a very specific order of things that you need to do it in or something. Um, I don't know. It, it was always a mess. So I, I haven't really done this with more recent versions, so I hope it's, it's much better. Uh, but yes, that is in a nutshell what it is. And you've heard from Stephen and me that we are scarred for life. Um, so Mark, do you have some better experiences with this? Well, I mean, I had my fair share of migration scenarios that were fun, aka I'll never get those minutes of my life back. Mm-hmm, it might be mm-hmm. hours. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I've been using them uh, quite often in my past projects again. And there are some interesting details you have to know. So usually uh, when you do migrations, what they will do is you write your C-sharp code, then you go into the console and you say .NET new migration something, whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not quite, that is not the command. And then it will generate a script that you can then again run from the .NET command line or you can also have when your app is starting so usually you have maybe an asp.net call uh, it will then run the missing uh, migrations against your database Uh, that's like the basic gist that you can do with migrations and they can be really great i think if you have a not too complex uh, database which is a bit of the ever uh, coming theme when you use EF call. So EF call is really great if you've got a small application, a mid-sized application. If you go really big, it can still be uh, your go-to choice. It's not that it, it will totally break then, but it might have some limitations there. And then you might look into some different approaches. You might even have then a database administrator that will fine-tune your every database um, request. Uh, but f- apart from that, you can do uh, a lot of cool stuff with uh, EF core and also with migrations. Uh, what I know is you always have to know how to configure your models accordingly so that the relations will be there. Because uh, sometimes if you then 
have circular references and you say delete on an object, uh, you will be then kindly reminded by the migration feature that um, what should I do with data that is attached to that one property and stuff like that, that you then have to yeah, configure correctly. But yeah, I, I, for my end, I really like migrations. I don't know. I mean, I know there are a lot of people out there that don't really like them because they seem to be a big mess, but I've usually been on the good side of them. And so I'm, I'm a fanboy of migrations. You hit it here first. Oh, should, we should, we should come up with some kind of slogan and put it on a t-shirt for you. Uh, no, yes. I think, I think the and concept. I can walk with that t-shirt through a conference and people will tell me that I'm a <laughs> terrible person for wearing throw, a t-shirt. Throw tomatoes <laughs> at you. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think, you know, the concept is great. Uh, in theory, but uh, yeah, it had some rough edges back then. Like I said, I hope it, it became better by now, so I should really try it out. Then again, and then I'm really um, diverging into something else, but uh, you know, what's also very popular is like the, the more graph databases or the document databases and that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, then you don't need to do all these things anyway. Um, maybe this is a good cliffhanger for another episode that we should do. Um I to be honest, that's funny because um, this is this is since since we're talking about other things anyway. So I've had the project with the CFP exchange. We might have mentioned it at some point where you exchange the call for papers for different events, uh, which totally died when there were no events anymore, uh, in person at least. Now it, and it, because you know I didn't put the effort into it that I wanted to do, so I now passed it over to someone else who who um, still thought it could be a success so good luck with that um he made billions and he made millions and now i'm crying yes. um but <laughs> he immediately said one of the things like you know i want to get rid of that sql database and it's just i didn't even think about it because you know i my experience from back in the day mark this one's for you is with sql databases relational things um that's what i know and that's you know the first thing that comes to mind whenever i want to start something and then i Put, take this off the shelf and start doing it unless I'm kind of forced, I guess, to do something else and look at something else. And I think, you know, um, the graph and the, and the document kind of databases aren't that hard. Um, it just requires you to maybe um, set up your code a little bit different because, you know, you, you can have fields that exist for the one record and not the other one. Um, so, but anyway, I'll, I'll, I, I have a feeling that Mark... Uh, maybe Stephen, I, I don't, I'm not even sure. Actually, um, has some experience on that one, so they can they can teach me. Probably not. And uh, they're both going. Me. Nope. nope. <laughs> sorry, oh, okay, sorry. I'm, cool. I'm from yeah. the I'm from the relational world. Oh so, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. No, Same but, here. No, I mean, I that is true. I think the document databases they there was like this NoSQL hype where mm -hmm. everything had to be a document database, and then suddenly. One figured out that for some use cases, relational databases make total sense. And for other use cases, you are way better off with a document database. And I think that still holds true today. So none of the approaches will be your silver bullet for everything. And I don't know if it always matters. I mean, if you're writing a small application, you might get by with both of them. But I just know that document databases and uh, graph databases, there are really cool things going on there today. Uh, there are a lot of development is going on there and they can, they're closer to the OO mindset. So you can, it's, it's not that big of a gap uh, as compared to relational databases. So yeah, we, we might one day 
uh, read up and make an episode on them. Well, Gerald can tell us all about them. Yes, I, and I, I, it's my mission now to get into this between my oh, 100 I finally, other I finally projects. will be a modern person again. Yeah, <laughs> you said it. So this <laughs> is try. this is kind of like uh, this is a nice segue. Oh my gosh, this is this is a good one because you know ORMs, relational kind of things. Um, we've talked about all the good things, you know, apart from migrations. Uh, but there must surely be some kind of downside to these things as well, right? Yeah, I think one of them that I frequently encountered when just getting started was on the performance slash type of queries it generates side. Um, like by default, I think it projects every field of every object you're linking together um, into the end result. Whereas you could just say, I need only these two fields. Um, doesn't ma matter if you make six joins to get those fields, but instead of just projecting like the whole bunch, um, I think that's what it does by default. You should at least make the effort of, of only getting what you need. Um, and I think, like you already said, it, it does do some magic SQL in the background. And sometimes that has results that are subpar, I would say. So on, on the performance side, definitely, I think there is some... Uh, some stuff where it it at least needs some extra attention from you as a as a developer. I remember one downside of using ORMs. It's like so easy to sometimes do a database request that some people they will not notice that they are uh, requesting the that they're making requests again and again and again towards the database. Uh, and so I think those are called the n plus one queries. So you ask for something and then you get the result for that and then you ask again for the next thing and what. And that takes a long, long time instead of just making one large query where you then just make one request to the database, which then the database can again optimize for and 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 that can be a huge delay that you put into your uh, applications that way. Another one that I remember is you said uh, projections, so mapping your uh, results into something else. And when you use EFCall, you usually end up using some kind of link queue. And I remember that the link queue from EF has got some subtle, but you have to know the differences to, to the standard link queue that you would get when working with collections in C-sharp. Um, those can be a pitfall in the beginning. So I guess quickly for the people who don't know what link, do you really say link queue? Isn't it link? I don't know. I always say, do link. You say link. Yeah. I just say link. Yeah. 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 Uh, tomato, anyway. tomato. Yeah. Gif or GIF? Swiss Dutch. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it's just that's a Swiss pronunciation. Okay, that's right. <laughs> uh, so, and, and, you know, because that is for the people who might be new to this sort of thing, that is kind of, you know, um, kind of the same thing as the ORM stuff. You write um, kind of query, quite kind of language in C sharp, um, but that will be translated, depending on what you're talking to, um, it, will, it will be translated to either. SQL or maybe maybe the SQL variant that you're talking to with your document database or maybe some other thing. Um, I think we could, we, well, other people could uh, make a full episode on that as well because I think it's a world on its own. I, I think I can barely scratch the surface. I know what it does um, from, from an overview perspective, but um, I know that you have to really watch out where you put like the two lists and whatever because then it will start translating all the things to your um, to those to those queries um, and also for SQL you know if you're talking about optimization and performance that's something that you really want to look out for 
um, because you want to, you know, um, have that thing fired on uh, the database directly if you can, and not in your C sharp code, which will have all kinds of performance things. Go look it up. You teach us how to do it because I'm just rambling on here, and I have no clue what I'm talking. <laughs> about. Yeah, but I think I think there might be still just like uh, one thing that just comes to mind as you were talking, Gerald is. Link you, uh, sorry, not link you. EF Core does a lot for you. So when you get an object from the from the database and you make any changes to it, so we say Stephen now gets the new name Steve O, uh, you can then just say save, and EF will automatically notice. Oh, this object has been altered, so now I have to make an update query against the database. Da da da. And if you don't want to do that, that can be quite costly because EF will then have the memory of your huge list somewhere and you do changes and you might not really want to store them anymore back to the database. So that's another one. But we started off this show by saying SQL injections are the top one thing on the OWASP list. And uh, just maybe to end on a high note, if you use EF Core and you make queries using the standard syntax, your input would actually be properly escaped. So if you use an ORM, you're often safer uh, towards SQL injection because it will properly escape your uh, input. And there's an XKCD comic that we should definitely mention in the show notes regarding SQL injection, little bobby tables. I think everyone knows that already, but we'll include it anyway. And I think with that little bobby tables, we have wrapped up this episode on ORMs. We've been your hosts, Gerald Schlaus, Mark Halibone, and Stephen Davis. Please let us know what we've missed in the world of ORMs. Are you a fan? Are you not a fan? Do you like migrations? Or are you just wrong? Please let us know on Twitter at NullPointers.io. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Stay safe. And until next week on NullPointers.